Friends, would you please turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 27. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 27. And once you have it, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word? And we will be reading through verse 31. In the Pew Bibles, it is 941. In your iPad, it is Romans 3. Hear the reading of God's holy word. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the work of the law. Or, is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law? By this faith, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. It was December 23, 2000. Um, We had just, Laura and I were still dating, and we had uh, her entire family over at her house at Camp Manitoba, the place that we affectionately still call the shack in the back. And um, her family came over, and they uh, had to, you know, eat like the, her family always does. It is nonstop, from appetizers to the, the fruit punch to this to that, the un- Nonstop, and Laura and I, when her family left, had piles and piles of dishes. She was exhausted. She was done. She was ready for me to go home. We were still dating, and she wanted me just to get out of the house so she could just fall asleep. But I had a plan. On that night, after much harassing by her mother and everyone else, it was the night where I was ready to say, Will you marry me? I had uh, met a man, his name is Ron Dacus, and Ron helped me design a ring that was special and unique to my wife. I went to a place downtown on Jewelers Row where they would sell just loose diamonds, and it, it was at that place where, uh, at Windy City Diamonds, I, I found the perfect one. It was, it was not flawless, but it was as near as I could afford, and it was beautiful. It was princess cut, and it... It matched everything just perfectly, and it was sitting in my pocket. She was exhausted. I threw on a couple more logs on the fire, and she just wanted me to go home. After a long talk of sitting in front of the fire, I finally said, Laura Louise, will you marry me? She looked at me like, are you serious? And you serious, like in a good way, not like, are you serious now? But it was in that moment I opened the ring, ring box, and her eyes just were like, 
It's Paul. She took it out, and of course, it fit perfectly. And she looked at it. She turned it. She put it by the fire. She held it up by the light. And she constantly was moving it. She hit me on the chest a number of times, just amazed by the beauty of this ring. The question is, what is it about diamonds? What is it that women say, I love a diamond. You could spend money on jewelry and give me a diamond and I will be a happy man. Some of it is just the pure beauty of a diamond. Every time my wife and I go to the Wisconsin State Fair, we, we go see cows, we, go see, we have to eat um, a 10-pound cream puff, you know, at the Wisconsin State Fair. We have to dip corn in buttery, buttery oil and salt it good and just chow down on it, but that's never enough. We always have to go to this one hall that spell, sells junk, you know, kind of trinkets and the latest hammock or the latest knife. But one of the places Laura always wants to go to is a place that sells this pink goop and they take your ring off and they brush it and they clean your ring and they put it under kind of probably a bluish light and, they, and it just radiates light from every, every little turn and it's beautiful. So there's something about the beauty of a diamond. There's something about the purity of the diamond. You know, every jeweler, you'll sit down and they'll say, okay, well, this, uh, the cut, the clarity, and the color. Is there one more? Cut, clarity, color, and cost. It's always cost. They, they will, they'll give you all the details, and, you know, you, they want you to have it as uh, flawless as possible, as clear as possible. You don't want a brown diamond. You want a crystal clear diamond without any kind of flaws, anything in it. So there's something about it not only is it just beautiful it is it is stunning the cost is another thing and some can afford large diamonds and some can afford small diamonds and sometimes it's not a matter of the the cash it's a matter of the cost that has gone into it and paul is looking today at the diamond of the gospel and, and he's kind of turning it around and looking and helping us see. Oh, look at, look at this facet. Look at this facet. Do you see how beautiful this diamond of the gospel is? How beautiful it is. How costly it is. How amazing this is. It is intrinsically beautiful. It is the greatest treasure that the God of the universe has ever given humanity. It is the most valuable thing that God could ever give us. And yet, at this point in the, in the book of Romans, some of us, I dare suspect, are getting a little maybe bored with the gospel. Paul, just move on. I got it. Jesus died. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Okay, giddy up. Move on. But the gospel is meant to be beautiful. It's meant to stun us every time that we hear it. So what does Paul do in our text for us today? He, he picks
picks up the, di- the gospel like a diamond and he rotates it. He looks at it in different angles and gets a sharper definition on the issues that, that flow out of the gospel so that the gospel itself for each and every one of us will be absolutely more clear so that the light would just shine through it so that we will be more and more amazed by the glories of the gospel and the grace of God who has gifted us with the gospel. Notice, if you will, in this section how Paul kind of changes up his style. He's a, he's a great teacher. Paul changes up his pace so he doesn't kind of lose his audience. He's asking questions again, much like he did at the beginning of chapter 3. As one commentator said, there here is some stylistic relief after the intensity of the logjam of prepositional phrases and the tortuous syntax of the preceding sentence. That right there is quite a a mouthful. But he's saying Paul is changing up the speed and the direction just to keep you engaged so that you can see the beauties of the Gospel. Paul has just unloaded a bombshell to his Jewish readers. The questions that he are at, he is asking here are ones that he are he is he are he is anticipating they would ask upon hearing these these this strange teaching. He writes as if he were in some kind of a debate, arguing with with a Jewish viewpoint. Okay, here are your questions and your objections. Here are my answers now. And in doing so, he helps us see the beauty of the gospel again. This morning. And here's the summary of that gospel, which Paul has explained in verses 21 to 26. The gospel is this sinful man is justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Sinful man who cannot keep the law is justified. He's, he's made right in God's sight. By grace. It's a gift that cannot be earned by anything that you do. Through faith, it it is requiring a personal response in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. In the fact that He died in your place. For some of you, this may be a new message. For some of you, it's a message that needs to be remembered again. Some of you, it's, you think that the way to please God, to avoid His punishment, is just to be good. Just to be good. Or at least be better than most people. You kind of take inventory, you look around and just say, I am not half as bad as so-and-so. And that, that you do at least that much to earn a place with God. And if I do that, then surely God will not punish me in hell because He's a loving and He's a, he's a fair, generous God. And that makes so much sense to us in our 21st century kind of sensibilities, doesn't it? God is fair. God is loving. If I just do good, He will not punish me. A good God would not send people to hell. Right? Right? That, that's what we, we, we want to believe. And the answer is, of course He wouldn't. God would not send good people to hell. But there's a tiny problem here. 
And it is this. Of the hundred or so of us here this morning, of, of all the seven billion people that are on this earth, of all the billions of people who have ever lived, how many of them are truly good? Zero. Zero. There is none righteous, as we have heard before from Paul. There is none righteous. Even the good of us, the good ones in this room, our, our lives are like an open grave. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God's holy standard. Every one of us, even that one lone guy on an island by himself who has never heard the gospel, he has fallen short of the glory of God. We need something outside of ourselves to come and to save us from our wretched, amazing, nasty-smelling mess of a life. The Gospel is that Jesus is that Savior. For He has appeased God's anger towards sin by dying on the cross for us. And that by faith, we can receive forgiveness. That is the good news of the Gospel. And Paul, what is Paul doing here in this section? He goes on to look at three glorious implications of this wonderful message of the Gospel. The first one is that, one of the glorious implications is that it absolutely excludes any kind of boasting. Excludes it. There's, there's, there's no boasting. Verses 27 and 28. Paul uses this kind of a really interesting phrase in verse 27. The law of faith. All along he has been contrasting the law and faith. That the law says that you should do something and you will live. If you live by the law, the Old Testament law, you do this and you will live. And faith says all you can do is trust what Jesus has done for you. And here he combines the two words. He combines the two words in what might, for some people, be a confusing kind of way. I think what he is doing is saying that there are two ways of looking at salvation. One is the way of works. Which means that you try to pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. You achieve. You accomplish. You get her done. That's the way of accomplishing salvation. That way, he has just shown us, is absolutely, completely impossible. There's none righteous. No matter what you do or say, you are an open grave. The other way is the way of faith. The principle of faith. Or as he describes it with a little twist of irony, the law of faith. This law says, it says that since you can't make it on your own efforts in any way, let me do it for you. And all you have to do is trust in me. Place all your faith, your trust, your hope, your dreams, place them all in me. And this is what he means in verse 28. It's kind of really a summary of the gospel, right? Martin Luther added the word alone in his sola fide, in his translation, although it's not in the Greek, but that's what it really means. The law of faith alone means that you throw aside all of your works. You cling to Christ alone. 
by faith because all of your works, all your activities, all that you do to try to please God on their own are pitiful, are wretched, are worthless, they're poisonous, they're stinking, they're exhausting. But Christ was the perfect, perfect sacrifice who by His blood He turned away God's wrath towards sin for all those who believe. So, now where is boasting, Paul asks. Where, are you, where can both, we, you boast? If you understand the law of faith, the answer is absolutely obvious. Boasting is tossed out of the door. The door is slammed on it. It is prevented by locking the door and it can never come back in. Boasting is turned out of the court once and forever and must never make its way back in. But yet, somehow, boasting is sneaky and it always finds its way back. We all love to boast, don't we? Look at what I've achieved. Look at what I've done, even in my own personal walk. I, I'm really, I am really down to earth studying. I schedule. I, I have amazing time with Jesus. Look at my life. Look at who I am. And Im- immediately what happens? We are boasting in self again. Boasting in the self. And, and it is really much like what the Jews do. They take great pride in their observance of the law. Paul himself, before his conversion, kept track of all the ways that he showed his obedience to the law. If you ever want to read it, look at Philippians chapter 3. He, he just kind of laid it out. You think that you got uh, a reason to boast? <laughs> I got gotcha. you. I'll trump you on all the ways that you can boast. And yet, what does he say? He now counts them all as rubbish. Just a pile of filthy rags, which is what Isaiah says about our righteous acts before God. They are just rubbish. And you're going to boast in your garbage? Really? None of us stand out at the curb on garbage pickup day and say, "Ah, look at what I've achieved. Right? In fact, most of us would rather not ever open the lid because it smells so bad. The gag reflex kicks in high gear and you just pray that when the garbage man comes, he comes early when nobody is looking and you pray that he does not look in your garbage at all. And you pray that you do not have to rinse out the bottom where all the junk collects and grows. But yet somehow we like to boast in those activities. Our best efforts, Paul says, no, even those are filthy rags. Quit boasting in your garbage. So what does spiritual boasting look like? Jesus gave us a great picture in Luke chapter uh, 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember that? There was a, a Pharisee standing by himself and he was praying. He said this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all that I, uh, all that I get. 
But what was the tax collector doing? The tax collector stood far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he would beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You can't have it both ways. If if you are going to boast in who you are and what you have done, you cannot be justified. But if you empty yourself of all your achievements and throw yourself on Christ alone, you will receive mercy. John MacArthur wrote this, the greatest lie in the world is that by certain works of their own doing, men are, are able to make themselves acceptable before God. The greatest error of that belief, he said, is its impossibility. The greatest evil of that belief is that it robs God of His glory. So when we boast in our achievements, we boast in what we have done in salvation, in our righteousness, we are robbing God of His glory. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 states that not of works, we boast not of our works lest man should boast. The reality is boasting is absolutely distasteful. If you ever watched a really watched an NFL or an NBA game and you watch some of those players, they scored. There was back in the day, I remember growing up watching on a big tube TV with kind of black and white grainy kind of background. Those of you who know what I'm talking about remember those days where you had to go up and turn the ta- channel, not click it from a distance or po- poke it at the eye at the sky, and somehow it changed count. Anyway, you're, you're watching these games, and what do they do? They, ju- they just dribble up, they, they slam dunk, or they make it, and they just turn around and go the other way and play defense. There's just something about playing the game and using their abilities. But today, you've got the Lambo leap, right? Sorry, Bears fans. You've got the Lambo leap. They have scored a touchdown, and what do they do? They jump into the stands to be applauded and to be beat on and say, yeah, look at me. They guys have their own dances in the end zone, don't they? You've got basketball players who will not just slam it. They have a special flair to slam dunking it. And then they walk away like this, yeah. And there's a way of boasting. There's no way that I can boast because I can't even hardly make a free throw. His son probably does better than I. So I have no room to boast. In reality, they have more room to boast. But when it comes to really salvation, we can do nothing. There's, there's nothing about our boasting. And our boasting is actually distasteful. We, all we have done is messed things up. On top of that, boasting is so out of place, so inappropriate, it even stifles our worship and makes too much of ourselves instead of making much of God. Just think about if you would hop on a plane out of O'Hare and you would fly all the way to London and you get out of of, uh, the plane, you get out into the open, you say, ah, that was absolutely amazing. Look at what I've done. 
and you get the pilot walking by going, you just sat on your dairy air the whole time. Why are you taking credit for this? The plane and the work that I have done is where the credit should be going. Galatians 6.14 confirms, be far, but far be it from me to take to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, what do we boast in? Nothing that we have done because we cannot boast in anything. We boast in the cross of Christ. We boast in what He has done for us, what He has accomplished. But on top of that, not only is it distasteful and it is out of place, it is also, boasting is exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. Your accomplishments are absolutely inconsistent. On a day-to-day basis, you may think that you're doing well. You, you think that just for a while, man, I look at what I'm doing. But then, when things are tough and when we're down and we're, we're not producing, it's exhausting to just try to keep up. If we're trying to make it on our own fuel, we feel like, like we're running out. Some of you are spiritually exhausted because you are looking in what you have accomplished. You haven't accomplished squat. Boast in Christ. Boast in His accomplishments. Trust in Him. Trust in the Spirit's work in your life. Don't trust in you. You are going to flop every single time. There'll, there'll even come a time where you just think, man, if I just do a little bit more, if I can just stay ahead of the Joneses, if I could just look, put on these appearances, all of a sudden you see somebody passing you up spiritually. And you're back down again, exhausted. If I could just put a little bit more into it. Do you see how freeing the law of faith is? It is for everyone. It is fail-proof. It is guaranteed for all of eternity. Exactly because it is based on not, not what we fickle, inconsistent, weak human beings do, but it is based on what our great God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is why the law of faith is refreshing. It's energizing. And it's free. But not only is, uh, can we glory in, look at the great implications of that it excludes our, our boasting in what we have done. It, the Another implication is that it includes everybody. You can see in, in verses 29 and 30, Paul continues his engagement with his Jewish readers by asking two more questions. And his, his, his point is this. If justification, if salvation is by the works of the law and only Jews have the law, then God must be only the God of the Jews, right? Or, or maybe there's a God for the Gentiles. No, that can't be because the Jewish believers would be going, no, that, that can't be true because of what we recite. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. 
There is only one God. So Paul uses their own core theology, their own core beliefs, and he says, here's the implication. If God truly is one, if He is one, He must be the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, for which many of us should say, all of us would say, thank God. He's, he's my God too. And if He is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles as well, there is no other way for salvation except through Christ. And we need to understand a, a Jewish perspective. They knew that, that God created the whole world and they knew that God created everybody in it, but they were convinced or they had forgotten, they had a memory lapse, that the Jews were meant to enjoy a meaningful, beautiful relationship with God. And they were extremely conscious of this, this special covenantal relationship between God but the Jew, Gentiles did not share that relationship. So the Jews believed that only by accepting the Torah, the teaching of Moses, the law, the Gentiles could even hope, even hope to become somewhat related to God in a similar way that the Jews were. Even in uh, 160 AD, one rabbi, well-respected rabbi, said this, God spoke to the Israelites. I am God over all who come into the world, but by my name, I have only associated with you. I do not call myself the God of the nations of the world, but the God of Israel. And this perspective is, 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 is understandable. Because even if you look at Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham. And he, he said, you will be the father of many. And from your descendants, there, there will be a blessing. And, and he said in Deuteronomy 7, 6, out, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, that he has chosen the Jews to be his treasured possession, which is a really a tender, very tender word, word saying, you are not only my tender possession, you are the very apple of my eye. But what the Jews had forgotten over their years, over the centuries, which is much like us, that we forget these things, was that their privilege was not intended for the exclusion of the Gentiles, but ultimately for their inclusion. And that is why Paul said in Romans 1.16 that the, power, the gospel was the power of God for the salvation for everyone. Who believes God's very powerful everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Gentile God is the God of all and so the salvation that he provides is for everyone everyone who believes the circumcision uncircumcision distinction so important in the past is no longer relevant it is for all because God justifies people all people the exact same way by faith or through faith no distinction is meant here S simply just a touch of irony okay that okay if you you have to be different then you are justified by faith and the gentiles through faith so okay you're you've got a different nationality you've got a different language you got a different skin color you got a different gender you got all these different things that could separate you but the thing that brings you together Roman church, church of Missio Dei, the thing that brings you together is our unity found in 
Christ. You are justified not by your nationality, your history. You're justified by one who came from outside and entered into your world and gave you life. That's freeing. It frees us. Can you imagine what awful news the gospel would be if this was not the case? If you, if you had just kind of come to the end of yourself, you, you hit the bottom, and then you realize that your own efforts are only good enough to just roundly condemn you. You come to the end and say, man, if I just do a little bit more activity, and all of a sudden you realize, you know what, that, even that good activity is enough to still condemn me. And then you hear about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and you want to receive this gift of eternal life, only to be told your skin color is the wrong color, or that your last name was the wrong name, or that you came from the wrong part of town or you don't make it socioeconomically. And so you were shut out of the grace party. But my friends, this is the second glory of the gospel, that it includes everyone who believes. Everyone. According to N.T. Wright, the message is simple. All who believe in Jesus Christ belong to the same family and should be eating at the same table. <laughs> that is what Paul's doctrine of justification is all about. All who believe are, belong to the same family and we should be dining at the same table. John Stott adds, if the gospel of justification by faith alone excludes all boasting, it excludes all elitism and discrimination as well. Hear that. There is no room in this church for any kind of elitism or discrimination. Period. And if any of that rears its ugly head here, it is room enough for church discipline. Period. But be careful what you also hear here. While all have equal access to this justification, since it is by faith alone, Paul is not saying that all will have equal participation. He's not saying what so many people in our day and age have come to believe, that God is basically at the top of a mountain, right? At the top of a mountain, and there's so many pathways up to God, right? And it doesn't matter which path you take because ultimately you're going to get to God. No, friends, there is, there is one path to God. And it is by faith and not by a generic faith in anything else. It is faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That is where your faith should be found. The Gospel is universally accessible to all of God's creation, but it, it is exclusively for those who put their faith in Christ. So let, let's think about this. First of all, you Jews or you Gentiles, and that includes, I, I'm guessing, all of us, do you understand how glorious the good news is? We do not have to become Jews 
to be saved. We simply have to have faith in Christ alone. And you need to praise Him for that grace. And then second, now that you're in, you're in the family of God, you placed your trust in Him, how do you feel about, think about, reach out to those who are currently out? I'm, I'm going to press in on this. We've, we've got vacation Bible school every year. We've got opportunities like this. We've got, at the end of the year, Halloween, where the rest of the world is dressing up and doing crazy things. We are saying, welcome. We want to bring you in. We want you to experience the love and the grace and the truth that's found in Christ alone. And you as a family should be desiring because you were once excluded, but you are now included. And you should desire that all would hear about Christ and be offered to hear about this good news. And you want to say, come Here's another opportunity. Here's another chance. I want you to meet a friend of mine who happens to be a believer. I want you to meet all these people because I I will do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes for you to be included in this family of grace. Whatever it takes. I will spend myself so that you do not have to meet God as your judge at the end. I will spend and I will be spent. That's the reason why you hear time and time again that we we are called to be reaching out to the unchurched, the underchurched, the unbelieving in our neighborhoods, in your family, wherever you go, in your workplace. Christ's love to this undeserved city of ours is the very reason why we go And are to take this glorious message of the gospel to even 2.8 billion people who have never heard of the gospel in that 1040 window. And then the reason that we do is because God is one. He is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He has provided the way for each and every one. Faith is the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we need to share that. Will you trust in Christ alone? John Calvin said, it was of great importance that this point should be urged in order that a free passage might be made for the kingdom of Christ through the whole world. I want you to get this because it is a free gift that is to be offered to the entire world no matter what color of skin, no matter what gender, no matter what they have been through. It does not matter. A free passage has been given if you would believe. The question is, do you believe it? And if so, how do you live that out? Here's the last one, verse 31. One of the implications is that it it upholds the law. Paul asks this final question in this section. While the question is easy to understand, the answer is not. Paul, throughout this whole process, has been setting law and faith in opposition to one another. And in the process, he seems to exalt faith at the expense of 
the divinely given law that was given to Moses. And it even almost feels like, and the Jewish people kind of feel like, man, so this faith thing is totally nullifying the Word of God, nullifying the law. So if the old law has just been replaced by a new law of faith, then it seems like we're jettisoning the old one. So, so we, don't have to, we don't have to live this way. We don't have to obey the law that's been given to us. Does, does it just kind of kick it out now? we got a new chapter. It's the New Testament. The old is gone. The new has come. Which is a terrible misinterpretation of that section of Scripture, just so you know. Paul is responding to a potential objection that he knows is going to come from his Jewish leaders. So, so you're chucking out the window of what God has given to us for the past 1,400 years? And Paul, Paul is saying in his response, Paul's goal is not just to calm the Jewish concerns. He's actually rotating the diamond. He's rotating the diamond of the Gospel another turn and letting them see another more glorious light shine through it to delight their souls and to delight our souls. His answer is short. By no means. It's one of his favorite expressions when trying to you know, say, no, that's not it. it it's uh, not a chance. It's no way. It's literally, may it never be, is what Paul is saying. On the contrary, he says, we uphold the law. And if you're a good Bible student, you'll be asking, what in the world does it mean for us to uphold the law when we are buying into this law of faith? So the really challenging thing about this question is that Paul is not going to explain it too much. He's, he's kind of living on some assumptions here. Instead, he moves on to the new chapter, a new topic in chapter 4. But notice how, that he's going to pick up the matter of boasting again in Romans chapter 4. The theme of justification apart from the law of works, works of the law in Romans 4, and the fact that both the circumcised and uncircumcised are justified by faith. But he doesn't expand any, anything of what he means here. So let me lay out a few things on how we uphold the law. First, there are moral demands of the law. This view says that the essence of the law has never changed and will never change. That even after being justified, we are not free to do whatever you want to do. There is a moral law that is still binding on us, and particularly the law of love. So while Christ has set us free from ceremonial laws, and there are 600 and some of those, he set us free from the shellfish demands and eating bacon. Thank you, Jesus. He has set us free from those demands. We are still slaves of Christ and his law. And while this is true, Paul doesn't begin to speak of our lives in Christ and the need for obedience until the end of chapter 5 and into 6 and 7. So, we still have the moral demands of the law. There's also the, the tutelage that's being taught of the law. And what, what that, by that I mean that Paul explains more in detail in Galatians chapter 3 that the function of the law is to bring us to Christ. To show us that we are unworthy, that we are incapable. 
to, to reveal our sin and to reveal that we are to be desperate for our Savior, to prepare a way for us who, to receive all that Christ did to save us. So what does the law do? You read through Exodus chapter 20 and the demands of the law, and all of a sudden you go, you shall have no other God before me. And you go, busted. You shall not murder. And then Christ reinterprets it even further, right? In the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And what I mean by murder is not just like murder, but like murdering in your heart. And you go, I'm busted. And again, it shows us that I need a Savior. I need to trust in the One who has saved me. I need Him. I need the law to teach me again how much I need Christ. So we don't jettison that. We depend on it. But there's also the fulfillment of the law. And in this view, what Paul is saying is this. The law was perfectly right and good in everything that it demanded. There was nothing wrong in the law, nor its moral requirements. Nothing has changed in that. But now, all the demands of the law have been met in Christ. How so? In at least two ways. First, it is clear that we have never upheld the righteous law. But there is someone who has. Jesus fully obeyed the law. He met every single requirement on our behalf. And this is what Christ meant in Matthew 5, 17, when he said he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. He, he upheld it. He fulfilled it by doing it, not by erasing it. And in the offer of justification by faith, He makes us an amazing deal. He is saying, I will take your sin on Me. I will put My righteousness on you. I will take credit. I will credit My keeping of the law to your account. You win. In the great exchange of justification, we get His obedience credited to our account. And if you have any kind of uh, accounting background, Sue, right? You're going, "That's, that's an amen. It moves from the column of red, debt, and taking that all and putting it in the column of you now have an asset that can never be removed. Never. It is no more a debt. He has fulfilled the law for you. And that is good news. Uh, So let me kind of wrap this up. Christ, our faith in Christ, provides for the full demands, the full demands of the law. The full demands of the law. Completely. So as as we look again at this, the gospel, we see Paul rotating this diamond in order to take care of Jewish objections and even our own hearts. And we are able to see new and beautiful facets. The gospel is beautiful because it puts everything in proper place. For us, for God, the law of God, it 
excludes boasting. It, it in, brings about rest. It includes everybody. It brings equality. It upholds the law. It declares God to be righteous from the beginning to the end and gracious above and beyond description. God is gracious. So how do we respond? How do you respond? If you have never understood this good news before, here it is. This is the good news. And it is for you. It takes the burden of performance away from you. But you must believe. You must trust in Christ alone. Not in any other system of religion. Not in yourself. Not in your work. But you must trust in Christ alone. You must turn from what you do to what Christ has done and throw your full weight of your trust on Him alone. And if you have already been justified by faith, hear these words from John Stott. Praising, not boasting, is a characteristic activity of justified believers now and throughout eternity. Praising. In the morning when you go, get up and get your fresh breath and you have a cup of coffee, you read God's word, the first thing is like, wow, look what I've done already. I've gotten out of bed. No, praise God that he has gotten you out of bed. Praise God that he is going to hold you through. Praise God that he is forming you daily and moment by moment into the image of God. More and more. Praise God. Don't boast. Praise him. Because it is an endearing and enduring characteristic of true believers now and it's practicing for eternity. Praising God for His work in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, as we wrap this up today, help us to remember the beauty of the Gospel that none of this is done with our own work and our own effort, but this is all a free gift of grace. The demands of the law are not that we do this to earn salvation, but to be conformed to Christ. Lord, I pray that we as individuals and as a community of faith will understand the glories of this gospel. Lord, I pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper, that we will come hungering and thirsting of the one who broke bread and fed the 5,000, that he will be enough for us, that it never has to be added with our activity, that he alone is sufficient. So, Lord, I pray for nourished bodies, nourished souls this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.